Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How are you? Good. Let's go. Titus chapter 1 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you missed last week, uh, Will Hawk preached a super encouraging message out of Luke 24. I was out of town. I missed it. He opened and then throughout the message used the illustration of mowing the lawn. And I listened to it Monday night while I was mowing the lawn. And I thought it was just apropos and really encouraging. If you missed that message, I think you can find it on a CD in the information desk out in the foyer. We've ended right before Easter a few months going through the first 12 chapters of Genesis. We're hitting the pause button on Genesis, and this morning we're going to start a four-week look at the New Testament letter of Titus, where the Apostle Paul is writing to a young letter, a young pastor named Titus. And then after we finish up Titus, these four weeks, we're going to get back into Genesis and handle some larger chunks of passage, larger chunks of Scripture in Genesis through the balance of the summer, and then, Lord willing, we'll, we'll settle down in the fall in what I think is maybe one of the most important, certainly my favorite chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, and that'll take us to Christmas. So let's get into Titus chapter 1, and as you're finding Titus 1, let me mention a couple things. Uh, I just, this morning, uh, coming into the sanctuary, it seemed like I, everybody I met that was new was a young soldier. I uh, met a young soldier that's from the desert southwest near my hometown of El Centro. Met a young man who served our country valiantly in Afghanistan and was injured in Afghanistan and next week is going to ranger school. So I guess that's the army's, you know, thank you for being uh, severely injured in Afghanistan. He's recuperated from his injuries. Raise your hand, brother. I saw you. I met you before right there. He's going to uh, served our country valiantly. was wounded. Yeah, praise God. And then I, I see, a, a, it looks like a, my eyesight is failing in my mid-40s, but it looks like a young private in uniform, I'm assuming probably just graduated from crazy little thing we like to call basic training. Is that right? And it uh, looks like his family's with him here, so he's just starting out. And so praise God for you and your service. Now, listen, um, like we always say, look, find a soldier. I met a, another brother that's a chaplain, just getting stationed here. They're easy to spot. They usually have short hair. They look hungry. And so invite them to lunch. But here's the deal. Um, we, like, we love civilians too. So if, if you are from Crosspoint, and that means you've been here for more than, say, three times, right? And you, this is kind of home base for you. I want you to kind of have your head on a swivel. And I want you to notice somebody that uh, you don't know and go up to them after the end of things here and say, hey, what's your name? Are you new? And if they've been here for eight years and it's an awkward moment, well, then press through it, right? <laughs> awkward moments won't kill you. I just hosted, my wife and I, a birthday for our 13-year-old son. who uh, We have a second teenager now. And yesterday we had a house full and a backyard full of middle schoolers. And so I know what it's like to get through awkward moments. We had, no, come on, middle school's an awkward age. Let's just be honest. So be awkward 
And maybe they're new and invite them to lunch, civilians, military, young, old, whatever. And um, let's just kind of have our head on a swivel to love people. So let's get in now to this beautiful word. If you don't have a Bible, um, I'd love for you to use the one that's in the chair underneath uh, the, uh, the, the rack in front of you. On uh, quite a few of those Bibles, you can find Titus on page 998. The other ones, I'm not real sure. You're just welcome to look at the table of contents and find it. And again, if you don't have a Bible, not, not only would I encourage you to use that Bible, I, I'd encourage you to, to keep it. Let that be our gift to you and read it and, and come back. And we'd love for you to, to be a person who reads God's Word. Well, today is kind of like the congregation eating their vegetables. We're going to look at this really important subject of what elders or also pastors, those words are kind of interchangeable, what, what the leaders of the church are and the qualifications that they should meet and what their task is. And so this is uh, one of those messages that, you know, it's not necessarily like this is going to help you on Tuesday morning, but it's going to help us be a healthy church for years and years to come. And so what I want today is I want us to develop a, a sort of a nose for qualified leadership. And I want, I want us to, as always, see the beauty of the gospel in this text. And I pray that Christians that are in this room would be encouraged and strengthened and humbled and convicted. And I pray that people that are in this room that are not yet believers, and certainly with a crowd this size, there are people in this room that are not yet trusting in Christ. Maybe you know yourself not to be a Christian and you're here by invitation. Or maybe you think you're a Christian, but you're not, and you're deceived, or you've been taught poorly. And I pray today that by God's kindness, you might hear the gospel, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus. And then at the end of our time in the Word, as is our custom on the first Sunday of every month, we're going to gather around the Lord's table and receive communion together as a faith family. And we open this up not just to members of Crosspoint, to all Christians, all those that are trusting in Christ. So if you are a, a member of another church and you believe the same gospel, the biblical gospel that we preach and believe and hold dearly to here, you are welcome to this table with us if you are trusting in Christ, in His work alone for your right standing with God. And when we come to this table, it's not, friends, just a mere formality that we do on the first Sunday of the month, but it is a time that we as Christians, standing in a long line of 2,000 years of churches and Christians that are looking afresh to the gospel, to the work of Jesus on the cross, and remembering what He did for His people, how on the cross Jesus bore the sin of all of His people, extinguished God's wrath against that sin, and then rose victoriously over sin, death, and the grave, and all of its consequences. And so we take this broken bread and this this juice in this cup to remember his broken body and his spilled blood on our behalf. And friends, it is far more than just tradition or a symbol. It is the time when we remember the most important thing in the universe, the gospel, the work of Christ. And we examine our lives in light of it. And when we find ourselves lacking, as is always the case, we run not away from Jesus, but we run to Jesus the only one that can supply what we need. And so after we read this text and think about it, we will, we will come to the table together. I have a very simple outline this morning because I know that you like outlines. We don't have it up on the screen 
You're just going to have to remember this. It's very simple. In this first chapter of Titus, there is a greeting from Paul to Titus, a greeting. Then there is a task that he gives Titus, selecting qualified men to be elders. And then there is a problem. There's a situation that these elders need to handle and lead. So there's a greeting, a task, and a problem. Let me pray and we'll start reading. Lord, thank you for your beautiful word. Thank you for the beautiful privilege to sing songs to Jesus and about him. He is, as we just sang, as Martin Luther penned centuries ago in the storm of the Reformation. He is a mighty fortress, basing that beautiful song of the Reformation off of Psalm 46, that you, O Lord, are our mighty fortress. Lord, we know that and believe that and confess that, and we come now to your word, and we pray that you would show us wonderful things from your book, from your law. Lord, encourage Christians and instruct us. Make us more like Jesus as a church. And Lord, I pray that you'd call unbelievers to faith in Christ, even this morning. And I pray this for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now let's stop there and look at this greeting because this greeting is actually one of, I think maybe the longest that Paul has in any of his letters. And there's more theology and truth packed into this greeting than there ordinarily is for Paul when he begins one of his letters. And I want us just to notice a few important things in this greeting. First is there that Paul sees himself and considers himself to be called to serve Jesus. And why is he called? It says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So, so, so notice here this age-old debate about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And that there's this people called God's elect which I believe the Bible clearly teaches is that God in eternity past has set his saving love on a people and he will, nothing will thwart his his plans, he will for his glory and their joy as a display of his redemption bring them to saving faith in him. I believe that is sure and certain and, and final. But notice that Paul is not caught up in debates about God's sovereignty and what implications this has on the, the, the validity of his responsibility. He sees the certainty of the end to be the thing that fuels the motivation for the means that God has called him. So even though he believes that there's this group of people called God's elect, he's not kicking back eating Cheetos. He is going after it. And saying that I must do whatever it takes 
for the sake of the faith of these people that God has called from eternity past. And that I must do this so that they must know the truth. And this is another thing I want you to notice, that this knowledge of the truth then gives root. It gives the fruit of godliness. He says there that in the end of verse 1, that the knowledge of the truth that he is laboring to teach people, then is, it, it's in accord with godliness. It means nothing to say that we're Christians unless there is some fruit of holiness and joy and Christ-likeness. And as Will did a fantastic job of talking about this last week when he talked about the responsibility of believers to be a witness for Jesus and to be a holy, distinct people in a, a dark world. We say it here often that uh, we are saved by faith in Christ alone. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by Jesus' work alone. But when true saving faith seizes a person's heart and it's given as a gift from God, it will necessarily produce some measure of holiness in our lives. So we cannot call ourselves Christians and just continue to live however we want. We are called to this godliness which is not tucking in our shirt and combing our hair and being a good little boy, but it is joy, right? It is better to trust in Christ and live the way he's called us than to live like a knucklehead and pursue false counterfeit pleasures. And notice also that the whole motivation, and man, we need this as Americans because we live in the most prosperous society in the history of civilization where we get everything now. Like we have made life here on earth so good and so comfortable that we have, we have forgotten about the eternal trajectory of the Christian life that's called in scriptures. Notice what Paul says. He says that all of this is for the hope, in verse 2, of eternal life, which God, who never lies, has promised before the ages began and at the proper time will bring to pass through the preaching of his word. Friends, the grounds, the motivation for the Christian life is not the false gospel of our best life here and now. It is the hope of eternity when we shall live with Jesus forever and ever. And you know that silly little phrase where they say sometimes that people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good? I actually think the opposite is true, that you can't be of any earthly good until you are saturated with heavenly mindedness. Because when you see that this, these 80 or 90 years are not all that there is to it, then you let go, you give away your death grip on these 80 years, and you long for heaven, and you're willing to give yourself away for the sake of the ministry of the gospel in this life. But, we, but, but aren't we like consumed with these 80 or 90 years? And the scriptures push us away from that. We call this life and... And the life to come, the afterlife, I think that's actually false. We should call this pre-life and that life. A week ago, <laughs> a week ago uh, Friday, the oldest member of Crosspoint, Billy Barr, 92 years old, went home to be with the Lord after a long illness, uh, about Eight or so months ago, he and his wife, Anne, she's sitting here on the second row with her daughter, Sharon, joined Cross Point. And it was such a joy. When we started this church nine years ago, <laughs> we were just a core group of my wife 
and I in our living room. We were in our mid-30s, and uh, we were, I think, really the oldest people in the church kind of at that time. We had a bunch of college kids who spent all of their money on smoothies and Starbucks. Um, And God, in his kindness, these past nine years has caused our church to grow not only numerically, but I think more importantly in godliness and in generations. And Billy Barr, during the last month of his life, was uh, in the hospital, in hospice, Gentiva, being taken very good care of by those sweet people there off of Williams Road. And, And Billy was ready to to meet Jesus. He knew the Lord, and Billy served our country admirably. He was wounded in Germany in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. And then he lived a faithful life as a printer in Atlanta and Columbus, raised a lovely daughter, stayed married for 65 years, and is just a good testimony of of a man who certainly wasn't perfect, but who lived for Christ and loved his family and served his country. But I noted something as Billy was in his last month, his health declining. Billy was getting increasingly annoyed that he was staying alive. (laughs) He was starting to get mad. I'm ready to go see Jesus. Right? Because for Billy and for every person in this room that is trusting in Christ, these 80, or in Billy's case, 92 years are not what life is all about, friends. And Paul, before he writes to this church and before he writes to this young pastor, he's telling them, lift your gaze from your belly button and this life and look and stand on the hope of eternity because that is what God has called you to. And friends, that orients everything for for this letter and for Paul's preaching and for our life and the gospel. So let's continue to read now in verse 5. That's the greeting. This is the task. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So that word elder... I want you to know is synonymous with the word pastor or overseer. It's not necessarily speaking about the chronological age of a man. It's talking about the spiritual fitness and maturity of a man and his ability to lead. Now, certainly it's helpful if that man is older and has experience, but it's, it's a bit of a different sense than we would in our, the way we would often use that word in English as, as merely an elderly person. No, this is a, a church leader who's called to be an overseer, pastor, elder. So Paul says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, now he's going to give the qualifications for these elders that Titus is supposed to appoint. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, again, an interchangeable word talking about the same office, elder. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must, verse 9, hold firm to the trustworthy, 
trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So let's stop there and look at the task that Paul has given Titus of appointing elders of a certain characteristic, certain characteristics and then the task that these elders are supposed to engage in in the church. Look at verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 there. We see, I think, three spheres of qualifications, three areas where Paul says that these men are to be evaluated and three areas or spheres that, that we should look at and they should have qualifications that they meet in these three areas. The first is in the home. Verses, verse 6 there, it says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So first, this man must have a home life that is in accord with his, his public life. It's in accord with his doctrine. He is a one-woman kind of man. And that's what that phrase there is, means, the husband of one wife. I don't think that this necessarily means that an elder must be married, but it means that if he is married, there's no hint of sexual immorality in him. He's not the ladies' man flirt type of a guy. He's not the type of man who is engaged in extramarital affairs. He's not the type of man who is struggling with pornography. He has his sexual house in order. And as Ephesians says, there's not a hint of sexual immorality in him. And all of his love and affection and his sexual energy is focused on his wife. Friends, that is a major problem in the church today. And if a man is going to be an elder, and you need to have a nose for this. He's not the charismatic, good-looking guy with the tan and the white teeth. He, he might be a scrappy-looking little cat. But all of his, like his, his affections are for one woman. And that one woman is his wife. And his children are are, he says here, believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Listen, volumes have been written about this verse in particular and wondering whether or not that means that, that it means that an elder's child must be a born-again Christian. I don't think, we don't have time to unpack all of this, I don't think that is necessarily what Paul is uh, saying here because we know that salvation does not belong to men, it belongs ultimately to the Lord. But I think what that word believers there means is, I think maybe more literally faithful and subordinate, that they are, they are the discipline that has happened in the home is a good reflection of this man's leadership, and these children are not just running amok. And they're not just like the, you know, the pastor's kids who just, who just terrorize the church and everybody's scared to say anything to them, but, but really secretly you just want to grab those little jokers and just smack them around a little bit. Have you ever been in a church where the pastor's kid is just a little punk? I'm sorry. You know what I'm... Shouldn't have said that word. Might get an email or two about that word. You can email me at robert at insidecrosspoint.com. <laughs> I'm sorry I say that. And a lot of times people come up to me and say, Brad, do you really got a, you get a lot of emails, people fussing? No, I actually don't. I'm just being silly. All right, just relax. But his kids should not be little rascals. 
you know? Doesn't mean that they're perfect. And listen, let me tell you something. It is. It's. It's hard to be a pastor's kid. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard because just sort of subconsciously people put expectations on them. And here's another thing. It's, it's hard to be a pastor's wife and a pastor's kid because people put expectations on them. And, and this church is so good about that. But here's another thing. And I've been thinking about this all week. Man, a pastor's wife and a pastor's kid, an elder's wife and an elder's kid, those you know, elders and pastors, same thing. They have a front row seat at the hypocrisy of their husband or father. Right. You get to see the best of me. They, they, they have a front row seat for the worst of me. And, and pastor's kids have to, like they have to navigate that gap in their life. E- even the best of men have some hypocrisy in their lives. And it's difficult. Pray, pray for your pastor's wives and children, but have a nose for a house that isn't perfect, but that is in order because a man must be tested in the home. Secondly, the second fear is that a man must be tested in his heart. Verse 7, for an overseer, an elder, pastor, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunk or a drunkard or a violent or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable. And that word hospitable in the Greek doesn't just mean that he likes to open up his home to his friends, but that word is literally a love for strangers. It's, it's you know the word phila, and I, I know I get kidded about mispronouncing this, it's like a verbal tick I have. You know the word Philadelphia, right? It means the city of brotherly love. Brotherly love is what that word means, philo, love for brothers. Well, the word for hospi- hospitality here is, is, is xenophila. It is love for strangers. It's love for people not like you. So elders, pastors have their head on a swivel to open up their heart to people that aren't like them, not from their demographic, not from their socioeconomic sphere, not from their ethnicity, not from their language group. They're, type, they're the types of people who love and have a, have a certain heart and are drawn to people not like them. And they open up their home to them. And they're lovers of good. They're self-controlled. They're upright. They're holy. They're disciplined. Again, friends, they are not perfect but they have the type of life in the home and in the heart that lines up with their doctrine and their confession. And then finally, a man must also be tested in this third sphere, his, his head, what he knows. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he, his home must be tested, his heart must be tested, and his head must be tested. What he knows, does he have a firm grasp on what the Bible teaches? And let's not be a generation or a church that is afraid of this word doctrine. Right? Doctrine is good for us, right? Do you, you realize that? And do you realize that you all have a doctrine? 
Everybody has a doctrine. A doctrine is just a word that means a set of assumptions or truths upon which you are living as a lens or a foundation for life. So we all have doctrine. Maybe your doctrine is that doctrine isn't very important. But that's your doctrine. And it's a bad doctrine, by the way. (laughs) But elders, friends, notice this. They're not like charismatic guys necessarily. Notice something about this list. It is so ordinary. It doesn't say he needs to be 6'3", 220, run a sub 4, 5, 40, bench press, you know, 300 pounds, have super charisma, be a great orator, have wonderful leadership skills. It doesn't say that. It says the leaders of the church should be good examples in the home and in their heart of what it means to follow Jesus, and they should have a firm understanding of what the Bible teaches about the person, work of Jesus, and they, can, they need to be able to teach it to people. Nothing about charisma, nothing about oratory skills, nothing about leadership dynamics. Contrast this with the broken CEO model that we often project in the church and say, oh, this guy needs to have this, this, and this. Friends, that is a lie. And the scriptures here are very simple. We're not looking for superstars. We're looking for faithful men that are good examples of what it means to follow Jesus and have a good understanding of the Bible. And then have the courage to rebuke people who contradict it. They're like Jim Cantori from the Weather Channel. You know that guy? Like he, fi- like he gets excited when there's some horrible storm and he plants himself in the middle of it and he hangs onto a telephone pole and he says, I'm reporting from, you know, Boston, Massachusetts in the midst of the storm. So elders are like men who plant their feet on the ground, hold on to the rock of God's word, even though the hurricane of a culture that lies is blowing against them. They say that there's a God who never lies, and they're willing to stand in the eye of the storm and contradict it. That's what elders are. They're not Tony Robbins with white teeth and tans and linen clothes and infomercials and seven steps on how to live better or ways to pep you up. They're humble, scrappy dudes with dirt under their fingernails who smell like sheep, who've been tested in life, and who hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, taught, and no doctrine. And they know it. A few things to notice just before we move on to the final paragraph there, and then we'll be done. Notice that it is, it's elders plural, not elder. So although I am the, I, I, by God's grace, through me, the Lord planted this church. I'm the founding lead pastor elder here. I'm not the only one. That means I do not have a singular authority. We share authority here. That means I don't, I'm not like the, you know, the, the Protestant version of the Pope here. I, you know, and I've got all these little minions that sort of, you know, burn smoking pots for me or something like that. <laughs> we got five elders and all of us have the same authority. And so if I come up with some stupid idea, they say, no, dude, we're not doing that. And when we move forward to bring something to the church, we, we are in unity in that, and in agreement. And so this plurality of the elders guards the church from the ignorance of one man, and it also guards the one, the, each individual elder from the church. So friends, know that, like, I'm just one of others. 
We have this strange little thing in the South where like, you know, hospital visits and prayers and all this kind of stuff and phone calls and emails don't really count unless they're from the senior pastor. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? You ever grow up in that culture? Man, I lived in that culture for a while where it's like all these other people are serving these people. Oh, the church didn't do anything for me. Wait, Wait a minute. You know, Joe came by and this person came by and what they mean by the church didn't do anything for me is the senior pastor didn't come in that moment. Friends, at the, at the base of that is just a, a self-absorbed selfishness. And as a, a church this size, when we were 15 people in our living room, we, we could, we could, that might be a valid complaint. But when you have hundreds of people, isn't it selfishness to just expect one person? And listen, I'm preaching to the choir. You guys have never demanded that. But we might have some new people here. So we've got to teach this every now and again just to kind of push against that silliness. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm not being manipulative there at all. We're a team of elders, and all of us have our weaknesses. And our weaknesses are supplemented by the other brother's strengths. Notice also that elders are men. Elders are men. Not because men are smarter or better or more talented than women. I've lived with a woman for coming up on 20 years now, my wife. And I have found myself not to be smarter, not to be better, not to be more qualified, really, in any other area of life other than maybe mowing the lawn. <laughs> but Paul here directs his attention to men, and he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is another letter to a young pastor, why this is the case. He says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 12, I do not per- permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, He's talking about in the context of the gathered church here, rather, and also in the home, rather, she's to remain quiet. doesn't mean that she can't speak in church. It means the authoritative speech of preaching and teaching is to be done by men. And then he goes on in 1 Timothy 3, and he says that the, the, the work, and it's a very similar list in 1 Timothy 3 that we read in Titus 1 about the qualifications of an elder. He binds up the role of an elder in teaching sound doctrine. And so the type of authority that an elder has is not because he's charismatic or strong, but because he is delivering God's word to God's people. So an elder's authority not, does not come through his personality or his charisma. It comes through his ability to give God's people God's word. And Paul is saying here that it is men who are supposed to teach in that context. Now, why does Paul say that? Does he say that because the group of women in the church that Timothy was supposed to pastor in Ephesus were a particularly, you know, Uh, surly lot. Some people make that argument. They say, oh, well, this doesn't apply to all time because Paul was dealing with some women who were in some pagan weirdness and they were getting converted and they weren't really qualified. And so this just only applies to that particular situation. And this this means that, you know, women can be pastors and elders and teach and preach in the congregation. Well, the next verse tells us where Paul is rooting his logic, not in the temporal situation going on in Ephesus, but in God's created order. So let's read Again, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Why? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So this is pre-fall creation order. God has made men and women equal in value and essence, but he has given them different and complementary roles. 
where men are supposed to be the humble, Christ-like, protector, provider, servants, laying down their life for their wives and for the church. And they are given the task, being created first, to be the ones responsible for leading and teaching. And women created second to be the nurturing supporters, not in any way less than, co-equal with, but different in roles. So elders are to be men. Notice what elders then are not. Just another thing I want you to notice here before we move on. Notice that they're not merely successful businessmen. A lot of churches get into trouble here. Oh, we need, you know, we got a construction project coming up, so we need the guy who's a president of a construction company. Let's make him a, an elder. Or we've got a, you know, we got a lot of finance situations. Let's get an accountant. And we got this, so let's get the CEO of the company because we need leadership. Friends, there's nothing on this list about business acumen. Now, if he is wise and has some skills in his secular employment, to God be the glory. And if those come to bear on the life of the church and his leadership, to God be the glory. Every gift comes from God. Every bit of wisdom comes from him. But notice that Paul's list is, don't choose the guys who are the president of the chamber of commerce. Choose the guys whose, whose home, whose heart, and whose head lines up with their confession. So, so an elder may be the president of the company, but he may be a janitor or a blue-collar ditch digger. And, and he's a guy whose head and heart and doctrine lines up with his confession. And he may be the president of the company. But first he has to meet these qualifications. You see how much trouble a church can get into when they pick the community leader that doesn't meet these qualifications? Friends, that's when the church falls apart. And I think we've all seen that happen to some degree or another. Elders are led finally by instructing in, the elders lead by instructing in good doctrine and refuting error. Before we move on and finish, I just want you to see these two things. This is the task of an elder, to know good doctrine and then to teach it and then to refute error. I don't think this means that every elder needs to have a Sunday after Sunday pulpit ministry, but if, if need be, he needs to be able to get up in front of the gathered congregation and teach the Bible and explain Jesus and apply it to life. And it needs to have the courage to refute error and to look into a culture that is against God and to say that is wrong. He's not a wimp. He's not the type of guy who's going to back down. So when there's a culture saying that this lifestyle is okay and it's completely against what the Bible clearly teaches about human sexuality, he's the type of man, knowing that he may someday be thrown in prison for this or persecuted for this, he stands up and says, for the good of a person's soul who might be caught in that sin, no, that contradicts what the Bible says. He's that type of man. And he teaches good doctrine. Listen to 1 Timothy uh, chapter, chapter 4. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Paul's writing to another young pastor. He's talking about good doctrine. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 
Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Listen to verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Other, do- other translations say doctrine. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and the hearers. So what do elders do? Do they lick their thumbs and, and, and find out which way the cultural winds are blowing? Or run off to silly little pastor conferences that just teach you self-help techniques and how to be better leaders? No, they get their nose in the book. They know the Bible. They're courageous. They're convicted by it. And they get up Sunday after Sunday. They open the book and they explain the book. They don't start with an idea and then cherry pick verses that support their idea. They open up the book and they explain the book. Because God's people don't need self-help or self-esteem. They need Christ. This is what Spurgeon said. I don't have it as an exact quote. But he said that his job as a pastor, and if you don't know who Spurgeon is, he was this super duper awesome pastor back in London in the 1850s. Had a pretty, pretty spectacular beard. (laughs) And he had a penchant for fine cigars. In fact, one time he was criticized for smoking cigars in the London paper, and he said that if I could, I'd smoke two of them at one time. (laughs) I'm not saying that I'm commending tobacco use. I'm just saying that I liked his personality. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. He said that his job as a preacher, pastor, elder is to open up the book, explain the meaning of the text, and take a hard right to the cross and talk about Jesus. That's what an elder's job is. Friends, that's why we spend a vast majority of our time just working expositionally through books of the Bible. And that word expositional preaching means that we want to expose ourselves to the Word of God. So the point of the sermon should be the point of the passage. Right? Not, here's this, you know, controlling anger. And listen and gather all this stuff. Now, friends, occasionally a topical message is helpful. And it's something that we need to do to address some situation in culture or whatever. We do that occasionally here. But we have a a serious conviction here that the vast majority of our time is just opening up books of the Bible and working through it. So we're working through Genesis. We're working through Titus now. We worked through Mark for about a year and a half. That's what we do. And if we ever stop doing that, and after a couple weeks we start talking about silly stuff about how you can have a better Tuesday, or three techniques on how to be happier, or blah, 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 blah. I, I, here's what I instruct you to do now. I instruct you to, in the middle of one of those third or fourth in a row, silly little man-centered self-help sermons, close your Bible, get up, stomp your foot, lob something like a rotten tomato at me on the stage, and don't walk, but run out of here. And find a place that will preach the Bible Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Because God's people don't need self-help or self-esteem. They need God's Word. 
And yeah, sometimes we have to eat our vegetables and stuff like this. And sometimes we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 6. And Robert Ward, a young preacher in the making, stands up and reads a bunch of Hebrew names to you. Yeah, that's not the most exciting, tantalizing Sunday in the world, although he made it awesome. But what we're doing here is we're saying something like God's word is like sufficient and all that we need. All right, let me go on. I could go on forever, but I'm going too long. Verse 10. Let me just decompress for a second. I'm not mad at you guys. I don't know why I'm shouting. I mean, you're awesome at this. I just, all right, go on. I get worked up. I mean, it, it just... All right. So I'm not angry. <sighs> Breathe. We're great at this, I think, here. I've never had any resistance on any of these truths. I'm just passionate about this because I just see the cultural shift in America going the opposite direction, okay? So I'm not, just relax, I'm not angry, okay. <laughs> Verse 10. For there, so, so the task of elders is to know the Bible and preach it and to stand against those who contradict it. Why? Because people in culture, in Crete and in America, for the vast majority of them, do not believe it and need to hear it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So there's these Jewish Christians who are still trying to make people (laughs) adhere to the Old Testament law, which has been satisfied in Jesus. And they're preaching a false gospel, saying that you need to add something to it. And we see that even today, people adding to the gospel. It's false, undermines the gospel. It's false, false gospel. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. Oh, friends, there are so many charlatans out there that just want to fleece people and have you send money to them so that they can live in mansions. It's ridiculous. I don't have time to get into that. I'm going to get all upset again if you get me going on that verse. So let's just keep going. God, I need, I need to relax. Jeez. <laughs> Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So Paul's quoting one of their own cultural prophets and absolutely dogging them. I mean, notice the courage. This is not Ned Flanders. This is not Goody Two-Shoes here. He's dogging these cats. He's calling them like it is. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Why? Just because you're going to be, he says, don't rebuke them sharply so that you can be some mean cultural Christian in a bunker lobbing conservative political grenades at the world around you saying, ah, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It wasn't like it was back in the 50s. No, he's saying rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. We're not trying to win a political argument here. We're trying to win people to Jesus. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Friends, is that not very true about much of the American church? They profess to know God, but by their works they deny Him. Oh, that that would not be said about me or about us. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Elders are to stand against a broken culture that lies and to preach the gospel of a God who 
as Paul began this letter, never lies to call an unbelieving culture to repentance and to be fierce in protecting the flock. Elders are to be like the chief elder, Jesus, who laid down his life for the sheep. An elder's life among the church should be like an object lesson, should be an echo, an image of the chief elder's life, Jesus, who gave himself up to die for his sheep so that they might trust in him. And what did Jesus do in his shepherding of us? Friends, there was sin and a culture that lies and a broken world barreling down on his people. And there was nothing that they could do to stem the tide. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves from this broken world on the outside and this broken heart on the inside. And Jesus, where we have all rebelled and bought the lie, Jesus comes, God himself in the flesh, lives a perfect life in complete obedience to God's holiness and law, stores up righteousness in his flesh, willingly lays down his life as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross, dies on the cross, absorbing the punishment and God's justice for all those that would ever turn and trust in him, and then rises again in victory over sin and death and all of its consequences. And now, because he's alive, now commands us to repent and gives life to his people. And whosoever will turn away from trusting in themselves and trust alone in what Jesus has done on the cross now become his sheep. And the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what we're coming in just a moment to celebrate around this table. Oh, that God would give us under shepherds in the life of Crosspoint that reflect the ministry of our great chief shepherd, Jesus, who lays down his life. Make us that type of church. Make the men that are elders, pastors at this church those type of men. Let me pray. uh, Ushers, if you'd come and be prepared to serve us. Lord, as we come now to remember what Jesus has done, As we've considered the task of elders, I pray a few things. Number one, I'd give this congregation a nose. Make us like bloodhounds that just have a scent for what an elder is. I pray for the current five elders of this flock that you would strengthen us, that you would Encourage us to pursue holiness and doctrinal fitness. You would guard our hearts from arrogance, despair, sin. That you'd guard our marriages and that you'd guard our children. I pray that you'd make us courageous in the face of a culture that lies. Lord, for the years to come, I pray that you, even today, would begin to fan into flame the call to serve as an elder of some young man or middle-aged man or older man in this congregation. 
put in them a desire. As Paul writes to Timothy, to desire to serve in this way is a noble thing. And Lord, if they see themselves maybe serving in that way, but they're not quite sure if they are yet doctrinally ready, Lord, I pray that they would come and speak to one of the elders and that we would begin a process of assessing and training and preparing them maybe for future service in this way. Lord, we need more under-shepherds of this growing flock. Give us, God, godly, humble shepherds that smell like sheep who get dirt under their fingernails and tears in their eyes and steel in their spine whose, whose eyes and heart are saturated with the word of God and who care more about truth and the gospel and being clear with people about its implications than they do adding numerically to the church. Oh Lord, guard us from the evil of the idolatry of church growth just for number's sake. And make us men who care about souls and the clarity of the gospel. And then make us men that are humble enough to submit ourselves to your sovereign plan. If that means that you grow this church to some big number or we stay where we are or we shrink in the face of staying faithful in a hostile culture, God, so be it. To God be the glory. Make us those type of men who are captivated by the word of God and the hope of eternal life the beauty of the gospel and God I pray for this congregation that you would that you'd help us see that and revel in that and grow in that understanding and I pray for people in this room who are not yet believers God let them know that what is at stake here is not self-improvement and and some tips on how to live but elders who lay down their life for the sheep because wolves are coming to destroy us in this culture and we need people who will model what Jesus did to lay down his life Because the stakes are high and eternity hangs in the balance. And the gospel is to be believed. And the gospel needs to be preached. So God, for an unbeliever that came into this room, let them see that, that what they need is not help. They need Jesus. And they need to turn away from their own trust in themselves and their own silly little counterfeit pleasures and sins that all of us at various times have been caught up in and they need to look to Jesus who alone can save them and give them their heart's desire. And let them see that he did that on the cross where he bore sin and shame and death and all of its consequences and defeated it and rose again victorious and commands everyone to turn away from themselves and to trust in him. Let them see that, God. In Jesus' name.